The White House's fiscal 2023 budget request sent to Congress yesterday seeks across-the-board increases in discretionary spending for nearly every agency. But the real message in this annual exercise is not the funding request, which most observers say won't actually get enacted. The Biden administration is instead continuing the long-term effort to rebuild, reskill, and revamp the federal workforce. Federal News Network's executive editor Jason Miller now joins me with highlights. Jason, is there any agency not getting a big proposed increase next year? Tom, the funny thing is when you look at the Biden administration's request to uh, Congress for 2023, almost every agency has seen an increase. The one that isn't, unfortunately for them, is the Army Corps of Engineers. They see about a $1.2 billion decrease. But when you go across the board and, and the Defense Department, no surprise there with everything that's happening in Ukraine and Europe, a more than a $69 billion increase. Of course, Tom, this is the increase that 2023 request over 2022 or 2021 enacted. So they don't bring in the 2022 numbers yet because when this budget was put together, we didn't have the omnibus. We still were under the CR. So it's probably a little closer than that. When I looked at discretionary spending, I think it was about $70 billion difference between what was approved for 2022 and what was requested in 2023 across the board. But every agency is up, up, up. Agriculture is up by $28 billion, for instance. Homeland Security up by $56 billion. Veterans Affairs up by $135 billion. So a lot of money is up, 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 Tom. And, And again, not surprising, but still, I think a lot of agencies feel like they need the extra money. They, they would like the extra money, at least, because there's a lot that isn't getting done that they would like to get done or areas to improve upon, especially in stuff, Tom, we talk about all the time, like technology modernization. And health and human services, I think, is also way at the end of that spectrum because of the so-called health infrastructure and some of the investments in NIH and CDC, too. Right. They've seen about a $29 billion increase over, again, 2021 actual. So uh, it, it's there's a lot of money flowing or there's a lot of money requested to be flowing. A lot of this, Tom, as you and I have seen over the years, a lot of times uh, Congress does what they want to do. And, and there's some happy medium sometimes and sometimes there's an unhappy medium that they find. Right. And of course, when you read the budget documents, most of it is devoted to their, uh, you might say, their policy priorities, and then they back the budget into that. So what are we seeing with respect, especially to the workforce, because there's a lot about the federal workforce in there, pay raise and everything else? Absolutely. And we can get to the pay raise in a, in a minute, Tom, because we've already, we've already broke that news back in February, Federal News Network did, and, and that's a 4.6% increase. But really what this administration is doing with this budget is really signaling to the federal workforce, they want to rebuild it, they want to reskill it, they really want to improve so many pieces and parts of it. And they say in the budget documents themselves, the federal government can only realize its vision of being a model employer by continuously evaluating and improving how its workforce is supported and engaged. And I think that comes through in, in many ways in this budget, Tom. And, and one, one way is, and this is a very simple way, is bolstering internship programs. Now, what the agencies have told the Office of Management and Budget is they plan to bring in up to 35,000 interns in 2023. And that would be an increase of what they're doing this year in 2022. So interns, not a big deal in the the overall scheme of things, but it's opening the pipeline to get more people into federal uh, service to understand what federal service means. And then also creates that pipeline of of younger workers. Tom, what's interesting about this entire budget also is the, the numbers they put out there about the average age of the federal workforce. The average federal worker is 47 years old. 29% are older than 55 years old. Only 8.3% are younger than 30, which is an increase, but still a very small amount of workers. So 
they are really facing a, a, this this bathtub effect, the gap, if you will, that they have to make up and interns are way to begin to make up those gaps. Now, this budget would be for the third full year of the Biden administration, roughly. And so it builds on a lot of things they've been talking about pretty much since the beginning. One of the big things they're talking about is, is improving the hiring process. And we've heard this over the last 10 or 12 years, Tom, what OMB this time and the, the Biden administration is doing is they're putting together what they call agency talent teams. And almost every CFO Act agency has what they call a talent team. And these are really experts who are trying to ensure that they're improving that approach to hiring, to really looking at it to say, okay, what, what are the assessments we're doing? What are the tools we need to improve these hiring outcomes? And the budget, again, for select agencies really are trying to really improve the high quality of competitive hiring. And one of the ways they're doing that is through something called the engagement of subject, subject matter experts in these technical uh, assessments and, and, and really saying, okay, what are the technology platforms we can use to allow agencies to share, for instance, approved lists of applicants. So hiring managers can more quickly see resumes of applicants, uh, realize they are quote unquote pre-cleared and get them into the process more quickly to really reduce that time. Tom, for a lot of agencies, it can take up to a hundred days to get someone in the door, to get what they call, you know, butts in seat. And, and that just, you know, from the private sector, Tom, that that's, you know, if you're weighing different options, a hundred days is a long time to wait to get in the door and to get started, to get paid. A, a couple agencies, the state department for one, the chief data officers council for two, have actually used this approach already using these talent teams to use these kind of pre-approved lists of these technology platforms to really demonstrate how this uh, subject matter expert approach can work. And they've seen a lot of success. We have stories up on federalnewsnetwork.com that describes these processes and why they worked. Right. We just had an interview with the government publishing office that says they've been doing it for about four years now, using actual tests of skill to see, in their case, people that need to fix machinery or do welding because they have that kind of work. And it's in the regulations for hiring from OPM buried in there, which are kind of like the FAR. Whatever you need to do is in there if you just go look for it in the right place. And let's talk about the pay raise before you go here, Jason. 4.6% proposal for service members and the civilian workforce in DOD and the regular federal workforce at all the civilian agencies. The, the pay raise is a big deal for several reasons. Number one, uh, this would be the largest pay raise in probably 15 years at least, 4.6% if it goes through. Tom, we know there's bills on Capitol Hill from folks like Congressman Jerry Connolly and, and others and Brian Schatz, the senator from Hawaii, who've said, we think it should be actually higher. It should be 5.1%. And the employer unions like AFGE and NTU and others have really come, obviously, for uh, supporting that 5.1% raise. And I've heard from other federal employees who says, yeah, great, 4.6% would be awesome. I'd love it. But it, with inflation being 6 and 7 and 8%, to them, they say, that's a 3% loss I'm, I'm facing here. Now, aside from the inflation and whether it's going to go up or down or where it's going to be in, in the next year, I think what this administration is trying to do is, is kind of convince Congress that this pay raise is needed for many reasons, both because agencies are behind and federal employees are behind in pay. They said between 2009 and 2020, the average worker pay rose 38%, while federal civilian pay increases only amounted to about 15%. So there's a feeling that when you talk about high-skilled jobs, people with advanced degrees, they're not on the same level, right, Tom? I mean, you and I have talked about this many times. If you're managing a $500 million project in the federal government and you're a GS-15 or an SES, that same school level, $500 million project in the private sector, your pay would be three, four, five times as much. And I think that's where the disconnect's happening. It's There's not a lot of GS1s and 2s anymore in government. Right. So, so I think what the administration is trying to do is really 
lay out a case to Congress to say, here's why they need not just this raise, a set of raises over the next few years to really bring up the pay of federal employees, because we can't compete for talent, especially hard to fill positions like cybersecurity, IT, and doctors and nurses, for instance, at VA. And it's all in Congress's hands now anyway, so anything could happen. But we do have the opening salvo. I think that's a great way to say what this is, is is they're, they're putting their cards on the table and now throwing it over the wire to Congress to say, all right, now it's your turn. And you'll see a series of hearings over the next six months or so. And, and, you know, hopefully by October 1, we'll see a new budget. Yeah, I wouldn't put my bet on that one. Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Tom. And be sure to check out all his coverage at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education she was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. 
How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, 
Let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the the art of of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, And I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind to convince people but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves i i saw you on a post uh, with a washington post um uh interview and it, it you were amazing and it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said because i could see all of that reflected in how you responded there and um make one other quick uh comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second. Confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Love Target? Well, you're about to love it even more. With Target Red Card, you'll save 5% every day in-store and online. Find the red card that's right for you, whether it's debit, credit, or Target's new Red Card Reloadable, which doesn't require an existing bank account or credit check. With Target Red Card, you'll get exclusive deals and free shipping on most items. Visit Target.com slash Red Card to get all the details. It's always a great day to save. Restrictions apply.